Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Options Show with Richard Talk to Big Guy, and Sherry Edwards still has her tool belt on, improving the really quite amazing uh, Sound Health Portal, the SoundHealthPortal.com, where you can go now online and do a trial. They have campaigns. If you go up to the top, I believe they have a tab that says campaigns, and if you click on that, you'll see where you can choose if you want to look at neuroplasticity, or there's also a PTSD tab from software that Sherry designed actually for 9-11 for firefighters and emergency people who went to the scene early and got all that toxin exposed to them, but then also modified it for post-traumatic stress disorder. That, or you can use the simple nano voice now online, which is so great uh, because you can do a vocal print I do. I use it to monitor myself on supplements. When I add a supplement in, I'll do a vocal print, which is just a short recording, look at the chart, and then uh, I'll add the supplement and go back in about 30 minutes and take another vocal print and see if it shape, shifts my vocal profile and monitor that. And it's just a great tool. And you can do this. You can also do that again all online. We used to have to carry around computers to do this. And you can also go in and do one of the campaigns, which are freebies currently, and submit a 45-second vocal recording. It's just a vocal recording when I say vocal print. Into the system, sign up for a free account, submit your vocal print, choose what you want to look at, and you'll get a report within it's a pretty short period of time, a couple of hours, maybe half a day I've had at the longest, and get back a report with an amazing amount of information. So I'm really excited to see the Sound Health Portal really evolving into something where you just go online instead of carrying around a computer. It makes it so much easier. And I'm going to say this again. I say it every week that I say it every week. This is another part. This is going to be a part two with a more great conversation with Dr. Stephen Schimpf about his longevity decoded the seven keys to healthy aging, amongst other parts that we want to talk about. This is I also in the show notes, I put part one. So after the show, you'll be able to go there and see the part one link back to the show we did a couple months ago. And so you can find this by going to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and then click on the sound health radio tab. And there at the top will be the some of the notes and link to get back to Blog Talk Radio, where there'll be all the show notes and the links to hear the show, and or you can just subscribe to it, which is really easy, by going to iTunes or Dogcatcher or Pocket Casts or now uh, Google Pocket Casts or Podcast, excuse me, Google Podcasts is really developing their platform quite robustly. So now you will be able to see show notes directly on Google Podcasts and you can subscribe there so that you'll just get notification every time we get a new show or any of the shows you want to look at. And they're, they're getting a really good collection. They're really on, they see the value of podcasts. And now, of course, everybody is suddenly going, oh, podcasts, wow, that's really cool. Um, but you can go there, and if you search for uh, Sherry Edwards or Talk To Me Guy, all one word on Talk To Me Guy, you'll find our, uh, I just noticed that we were over 730 hours of shows. Wow. 
It's a lot of talking. Um, let's see. Is there anything else I need to announce? I think that may be it for now. Seemed like there was one other thing. Mm, I think that's it. Stephen Schimpf, MD, is a quasi-retired internist, professor of medicine and public policy. Former CEO of the University of Maryland Medical Center, Stephen has authored six books for the general public. From the bedside where he treated patients with acute leukemia and lymphoma to the boardroom where he served as the CEO of a major academic medical center, Dr. Schimpf has witnessed firsthand the explosion of diagnostic and treatment technologies, including the emergence of the genomics revolution. He also has dealt with the frustrations of trying to manage a large healthcare organization in an ever-changing healthcare landscape. Dr. Schimpf returns to continue helping us understand Longevity Decoded, The Seven Keys to Healthy Aging. Welcome, Dr. Stephen. Well, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it, Richard. I'm, I'm, I realized, I, I have to admit, I'm, I, you know, my hand is raised. I, I had a, a funny aha moment. I was I was re-listening to some shows, uh, the show that we had done, and I was reading some other show notes, and I, I, it's so obvious, but that's why it was a funny aha for me. I realized that the seven steps was not a shopping list. It's not like, oh, I'll take that one, I'll take this one, I'll take that one. It's really a lifestyle. I, it's a shocking. Exactly. I know it's like, I, I have a confession. That's my confession. Like, oh, my God, it's not a shopping list. I don't get to choose. Okay, I'll do this. I'll do this. It's really, you know, it's a thing. It's a, this is how we get to be, uh, we're longevity. We're, we're like, oh, if we do all these things, we'll just get there. Which leads me to, talk, to ask you to talk more about the blue zones. We really didn't get to cover blue zones and why they're such shining, shining examples of, oh, look, this is longevity happens. So what are blue zones and why are they shining examples? Okay, well, the blue zones, there's five of them, which really means there's probably more than five, but there's five that have been nicely studied. And they're in different parts of the world, and they're, what's similar about them is that they have a very high percentage of people that become centenarians. So these folks have lived to 100, and not only that, they live to 100 healthy, so that they, they get there uh, without all the toils and tribulations that most of us have to get to whatever age we make it to. So that's pretty amazing. So the areas are uh, an area in the island of Sardinia, which is you know an island off the coast of Italy, an island in Greece, uh, Icarus, uh, another island, Okinawa in Japan, and in uh, uh, Central America, a peninsula, the uh, I think if I pronounce this right, Nicoyan Peninsula. And uh, finally, in southwest California, um, um, Loma Linda, uh, an area where there's a large percentage of Seventh-day Adventists. So that's the seven areas. And it's just fascinating that these people do so well without, I'm going to say without trying. It's not that somebody's there saying, you know, follow these seven principles like I'm trying to do. Uh, they, this is just what they do, and uh, they basically do follow these seven keys, which is what they eat, how they move all the time. They seem to deal with their stress well. They go to sleep and don't have any problem with it. Um, some of them smoke, but not very many. 
most of them uh, do drink, but well, not all. The Seventh Day Adventists don't drink. Uh, others do, but not in, in not in with exuberance, shall we say? Um, they all seem to be challenged all the time, brain-wise, and they're very social. They interact with their neighbors and their family. Uh, family is very, very important. So those are some of the the similarities. But there's big differences, too. I find this quite fascinating. Um, you might say, well, it must be they're all genetically related somehow or you know, have the same genes. Well, I guess we all came from that same uh, first African. Uh, but uh, these people are clearly in, in different parts of the world. They, uh, they have different religions. They have different interests and lifestyles. Uh, not about the lifestyles. Well, they, they, they are. They, they're all. We're just. They're all different. And so the question is, what what is it about them that makes them similar? And and it is the lifestyles. So let me stop there, and we can move on from it. Um, well, I, I want to toss more. in something. I, I want to toss in something also about. Um, there's a town in Northern California, up near Saint Helena, uh, called Angwin, California. Uh, where there is a Seventh-day Adventist university. And when I would go up there for a while, I was doing some work with a chiropractor up there, and he was part of that community, and you would go into the town. I I have to say it this way. I I don't mean this as a derogatory, but it felt cultish at first because everybody seemed kind of pleasant and neighborly, and it was hard to find a good burger because they're vegetarian. <laughs> um, but I mean, once you under, once I began to really understand what the community was and that it was part of that world of, as you said, all those, I mean, they just lived that way. It wasn't a thing. They didn't go out of their way to be in community or to be part of, you know, others' lives and be kind and caring. That was just who they were. And exactly. it was a, it was just like, wow, you mean this is just how you are? And then I, I became a good, uh, have a good friend who's a Seventh-day Adventist, and he, I saw it in other parts of his life where he would really go visit his son at university. I mean, it was just, it's, a, it's, just, it's just really who they are. It's not a special thing they do. That's right. You mentioned vegetarian. They're not all 100% vegetarian. But uh, they eat a largely plant-based diet, and when they do eat uh, meat or fish, um, they get quality meat and fish. Um, Very few fast food restaurants, because they simply don't go to them. So, you know, the the fast food restaurants don't pop up. Our daughter's been to both Okinawa and the Nicoyan Peninsula in Costa Rica, and what she told me, I'll do uh, Costa Rica first. Uh, first of all, this, this little peninsula is sort of away from everything. There's a big mountain chain that sort of blocks the peninsula from the rest of the country. So to get there is a is a chore, <laughs> if you will. Um, and uh, the people there live, if I say simply, you know, that might sound derogatory. It's not meant that way at all. But what she described about the food was that she said it, it beats whole foods hands down. That everything is fresh. Uh, they all have little gardens, and the, but then there's um, you know farms as well. Um, they eat fresh food. They eat a lot of fish because it's a peninsula. They eat meat, but it's all grass-fed. 
completely grass-fed. So the, the cow, the sheep, the whatever, just eats out in the pasture. And, um, and, and as a result, the, the fat in that meat is different than the fat we buy in the supermarket, um, which, um, it, it, you know, those cows have all been um, fed with, you know, oats and soybean and, and corn in the feedlots. And so they have a whole different type of fat in them. Anyway, her description of of, of the food was, you know, just wonderful. <laughs> um, lots of fresh vegetables, uh, lots of fresh uh, fruits. Uh, she said the butter was beyond belief because it was just, you know, it was organic by by nature. They don't use herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers. Um, it's just they everything is just, I guess, natural. And the people. Um, and I've read this about the, the same in all the other areas, is that they're moving all the time. Um, in fact, I think I'm, I'm sitting here right now. I think I'll just stand up to talk to you for a bit. Um, they're moving all the time. And even those 95-year-olds and 102-year-olds, they're just out just walking, walking to the neighbors, walking to the store, walking to church, whatever it may be. And um, uh, so that it's just that... It, it, it's just constant motion. You know, we're into nowadays having a Fitbit and measuring our number of steps we take. Well, they don't need to because <laughs> they're always moving. Uh, they don't need to think about have I stood up in the last hour uh, because they probably have been. And it's, it's just a different way, a different way of life. Somehow, um, again, this is what I've read, not what she told me, our daughter told me, but uh, that these people seem to have this ability to shake off stress, you know, if, uh, it, they can let it roll off their back. They practice what I'll call gratitude. They see, I'm looking out the windows right now, and it's springtime, and the trees are in blossom, and they'll stop and they'll think about that and say, wow, isn't that wonderful that I have this opportunity to look out the window and see these beautiful, beautiful flowering trees. Um, that's that little bit of gratitude. They're, grat- they're grateful for the for the neighbor that brings them something. In fact, they're grateful for that fish that's feeding them. So it's a it's it's a sense of uh, life is good. I guess life is good. Also, that life has a purpose. Uh, purpose may not be I want to become president or CEO of the company, but maybe it's just I want to work in the garden. I have a reason to get up today. And that reason is um, uh, meaningful to them, meaningful to them. That's what's important. Uh, it keeps them occupied. It gives them a sense of uh, uh, focus. But again, as I say, it's a, it's a reason to be up and living and, and doing things, not just sitting around watching the television set. <laughs> and and that is really, as I get continue to keep getting older. It's a shocking thing. I continue to keep getting older. Every day I wake up and think, oh, another day. That's amazing. Yes. But when, I, when I've been around people who spend a, lot, a bit of time either meditating or doing a practice like Tai Chi or Qigong or something, a slow motion, not a competitive kind of thing, but more of a just being in the moment, being in the now, as some would say, that gratitude's I've been with Qigong masters, which are often older Asian people. And I mean older 
Like I remember this yes. one Qigong master I worked with who was 90-something. And when she did focus her chi on somebody, uh, it can be used as a weapon. People just don't know that. But, I mean, when she would focus her chi on somebody, she could demonstrate, she would demonstrate with a Qigong master, another Qigong master, that just by focused energy, she could put him down. Not, not kill him, but just would cause him to go into an unconscious state. So it wow. can be used as a healing or as a other kind of modality. But she had so much vitality. She had so much gratitude and was so humble for what she had and who she was. And it was an amazing thing. I mean, she was a really big deal Qigong master in the world of Qigong, which is an energy kind of, it's called energy medicine, but it's also a practice you do. And it's a slow motion energizing, being kind of present in the earth. And the amount of gratitude that she had was always surprising versus that, I don't want to necessarily blame it on Western lifestyle, but we seem to be more narcissistic, whereas other cultures that have long times of practices of some kind, whether it's meditation or just being in nature, or a practice doesn't have to be something boring. <laughs> well, I mean, some people consider meditation boring. But it, it's really surprising how much benefit that has of just being in the moment, even if you're just sitting and looking at the ocean, or as you say, looking at the, you know looking out at nature and being appreciative. Is that in all of your research is gratitude or any of that ever actually observed? I mean, it's people are probably writing papers about it, but it's more like, wow, what's this? I don't know. Well, I don't know how well it's been studied in the you know in the in the sense of uh, the way we like to talk about medical type studies where you do a randomized prospective trial of this person practices gratitude and that person doesn't. I don't think that's ever been done. But uh, certainly there's uh, a wealth of what's called anecdotal evidence that those who practice gratitude do better. Um, They're calmer. They're more collected. And what you were talking about, my pronunciation is not going to be right, Qigong, is that right? Oh, Qigong, yeah. Qigong. So a friend of ours um, who does healing touch uh, was sent me a video. It's just a seven-minute one of Qigong, and I've been doing it, and it's very peaceful, relaxing, and I feel really good. You know, it's only a few minutes. Do that early in the morning uh, before breakfast, and it's sort of like a, wow, what a, what a way to start the day. And you talked about meditation, there's a lot of scientific studies now about meditation. If you do um, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging of the brain, or a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, you can show how the brain changes with meditation. Hmm. And people who, who meditate on a regular basis, um, the front of the brain, um, it's called the frontal area, and it's our executive control area, the things that kind of keeps us balanced and focused and getting things done and so on. Uh, that actually enlarges, and uh, that's an area of the brain that gets smaller as we age. But with meditation, it actually gets larger. And the same thing for the hippocampus. The hippocampus is way in the back of the brain, and it's our learning area. Uh, we might talk about that more later, but it's our learning area, and uh, it gets smaller as we age, and it's one of the first areas to be hit by Alzheimer's disease. Uh, 
So if we can grow our hippocampus, that's really to our advantage. Well, it turns out that meditation will enlarge it. So will exercise, by the way. So those two things, uh, um, exercise and meditation, have a great value for our brains. I didn't know that about the hippocampus. That's great. Um, so, and, and so exercise, is there a growth hormone involved? And why does, do you know the why of why exercise stimulates the hippocampus? Uh, I, honestly, no, I don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it does. And you can do, uh, again, with MRI, you can actually measure the volume of the hippocampus and then put someone on a on a exercise regimen, come back and measure it six months later, and it will have grown. It will wow. have grown. Wow. Okay. Makes me want to get back on the bike. Um, <laughs> yes. I want, I want to jump. We're in the same category, but I want to jump slightly to I, I made a note of, and I this is in this conversation because it's chronological age versus mental age. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's a really important angle. Mental age, chronological age, and we might also talk about biological age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, we, we all know somebody, let's just take a bunch of people that are 50 years old, and we all know some people who are 50 that look like they're 60, and then there's the, or, and act like they're 60, but then there's those that are, that are 50, but they look and act like they're 40. And you say, you know, how can that be? They're all 50. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, there's a, actually this fascinating study, I think, in um, a little town in New Zealand. And this goes back now some almost 40 years now when it was something over 1,000 kids were born this, that year. And so they registered them all as long as the parents were willing. Uh, they registered them all in this registry. And then they've been followed ever since. And they did IQ tests during, uh, you know, when they were in school. And um, uh, and then as they got, when they got older, more recently, uh, last 10 years or so, they've been measuring uh, a variety of, I'm going to call them physiologic markers, things like blood pressure, pulse, um, uh, reflex time, and uh, then they did some blood tests. Uh, they're looking at liver function, kidney function, and a variety of others. And and they, they did some tests of lungs and hearts. Uh, and again, uh, mental tests. Uh, you know, the IQ tests again. Well, so it turns out that the last time they did this was a couple of years ago. And by the way, this has been done by folks at Duke University Medical School. Um, the the so everybody was, I think, 37 years old, thereabouts anyway. And just like I was saying before, some were as old as 61, or at least one person was as old as 61 biologically, and some were as young as in their 20s, uh, middle 20s. You say, wow, how can that be? And the answer, of course, is we don't really know, uh, and that hopefully they'll be able to sort out. Uh, but these differences are so striking and that one of the things I thought was really fascinating, they took pictures, just, of, just a, a snapshot of each person, and then they gave this, the pictures without any further um, identification to a group of college students and said, write down the, you, the age of the person. Mm. And guess what? 
the people who biologically were younger, the students said they're younger. And those who were biologically were older, the students said they were older. Remember, they were all 37 years old. All came from the same little town. Hmm. Um, and and then, then they asked the individuals, uh, tell me how old you feel you are. Not how old you are, we know that, but how old do you feel you are? And those who were biologically older always said, I feel older. And those who were biologically younger all said, I feel younger. So do we know why this is? Not entirely, because right at this point it's just what I'd call an observational study. Um, there's nothing, you know, they're not trying to do anything with them. They're just following them. But it just shows that we're all different. And, um, and then it gets back to our five blue zones where the, the, the people who follow this way of life, just as, as you said with the uh, Seventh-day Adventists, this is just the way they live, and it works. It works. Uh, last week, I think it was last week, I did a show with a woman who has a uh, a book about diet for for diabetes, and one of the major influences in her life was that her father was a major franchisee of European health spas, which were founded by Jack LaLanne. Yeah. And she remembers meeting Jack LaLanne when she was a little girl, and we're both of a vintage where we know who that is. Other people will have to look him up. (laughs) (laughs) And she said the amazing thing about him is that as long as she knew him and she knew him for years, not really, not like sitting down and having, you know, probably meals, but mostly just in the experience of seeing him in all the spas her father was involved with, but that, but that he was truly that person. It wasn't an act. Uh, Yeah. There was Jack, Jack would be on any show. He'd be on Johnny Carson and he'd drop and give Jack, you know, do 50 push-ups like nothing, no matter what age he was. He had no – his biological – I have no idea what his biological age, and I can't remember how old he was when he died. But he was always like the ever-ready bunny. I mean, he was just – but he was also – his mental acuity was as sharp as his physical body. Yes. Um, he was just – he was a shining example from the 60s, I kind of think. Um, of this is what it could look like if you if you stayed that course all the time. I mean, he was just an amazing model, and it really shaped her life. Uh, she's still in the physical industry uh, today, uh, and it's just he's one of those people that's an example of. I don't think he ever thought about being old. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I got it. My <laughs> wife had an uncle uh, who died recently, just a week or two before he was going to become 102. And until really very close to the end, he was sharp as a tack. Sure, he was slower, <laughs> um, but uh, there wasn't much that, that he didn't remember or couldn't do. Uh, he was deaf as could be, but with some of one of these new uh, technologies that grandson got him, um, uh, we were there at Christmas time, just shortly or well, a year before he died. And I remember talking into the device, uh, voice recognition, and it would show up on the screen, and he'd see the question, and he could answer it. And we had a very lengthy conversation about his time in World War II when his ship was torpedoed and what happened and, um, and so on. And at some point I said to him, Uncle John, I always get the feeling that you just never get stressed. 
he looked at me kind of strange. And, and by the way, his his daughter had died at 40 of cancer. His wife had died in her 60s of, of lung cancer. He'd, he'd been through a lot of, of, of grief. And, you know, you could say he would have a reason or a right to be to be grief-stricken. But anyway, he, he looked at me and he said, yeah, he said, I guess I just let it roll off my back. And he said it just mm-hmm. in that sort of voice. You know? So it, it, there's something to that. <laughs> uh, now I know, again, one person doesn't answer the question, does it, is that really the thing? But it does answer the question when you, when you see it in multiple, multiple people. Mm-hmm. I had a grandmother that lived to be 106, and she lived alone until she was in her late 90s and went out for walks every day and worked in a cafe baking pies, really amazing pies. I can still think, flash back to as a child. She still makes a pie crust that blows my mind till this day. Yes. And that she was completely, she lived in Salt Lake City, and she, you know, up until her late 90s, would go out every day and sweep her walk of snow or do whatever she needed to do and was active and completely cognitive. And then she had the uh, misfortune to slip while out doing the snow thing and broke a hip. And she (laughs) was so tough. She was always tough. Uh, Tough in that she didn't want to be hospitalized. She'd never been in a hospital. I mean, really kind of like literally never in a hospital. She'd always been active her entire life. And she got up and walked out of the hospital. Just like, I'm. what am I doing in here? And I'm out. And she wasn't <laughs> discognitive. She was just not having any of it. And yes. eventually they did get her back and they repaired their hip. And she lived to be 106. And, I mean, she eventually did go into a more of a home, mostly for people to be around her and be in community, um, rather than because she needed to. There was not a need. It was a. It was better for her to be someplace where she could be kind of watched and and have a more casual life. But she was just tougher than nails. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was amazing to me. And and completely cognitive. As you say, remembered everything, would go back into talking about her childhood. She had actually come across the United States in a wagon as a little girl. Wow. And lived wow. all the way to then flying to California in jets. What I, I always thought was like an amazing, that would be like if we had jet packs or you know, transporters now. I mean, just that idea of that length of life. But she always, she would get cranky at one of her kids, but she was always pretty much doing something, and not busy work, actually doing something, and involved in her community. Back to the seven steps, you know, the seven health aging steps. I mean, she really was just, that was her life as a, as a regular thing. It wasn't an extraordinary, like, I don't eat that because of, it was just how she was. And and she'd also had most of her life a, what I would call an impeccable diet, meaning like people in Sardinia or these other cultures where she was eating grass-fed meats, growing a lot of her own food, um, so there weren't chemicals involved. So she'd just grown up that way. She'd grown up organically, organically. It was an amazing thing to observe. And, you know, I think probably you and I did too, at least for the first years. Uh, before there was heavy use of fertilizers and heavy use of insecticides and so on. Uh, I I, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that the milk I drank as a kid was probably organic, that the uh, the butter I put on my toast and 
and the vegetables we got at, at, at the store, um, which mostly were fairly local. I mean, they might have come from 30, 40 miles away, but um, they were fairly local, and we ate with the seasons. Uh, I suspect the beef was um, um, not grass-fed. <laughs> uh, it was grain-fed. But most things were, 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 yeah, we ate butter. <laughs> I drank whole milk. Actually, I didn't. My parents would pour off the cream, because those are the days of this pasteurized but not homogenized. They'd pour off the cream. That went in their coffee. And so I guess I got sort of semi-skim milk, but uh, <laughs> but it was <laughs> but it was fresh, <laughs> and, and, it, and it you know there wasn't a lot of stuff in it, and the cows weren't given hormones and antibiotics and so on. But right. it's it's so different today. And you know well, and we were talking about. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, we were talking about uh, the the five blue zones and. Uh, Again, our daughter has been to Okinawa again, and she points out that uh, it's changing there now. Uh, the younger generation isn't following the older generation's habits. And uh, the, the fast food restaurants are proliferating. Uh, uh, people don't want to walk to things anymore. They want to ride. Uh, they don't live close together anymore. Uh, they want to live out in the suburbs. Uh, you know, it, the life is changing. I was going to toss in that as a child um, and a little beyond, uh, my family, my father was a realtor, and so he knew a boatload of people. And one of the people that we knew was a, a fr- family friend, and they had cattle that were pasture-fed. Back before that was a thing. That was just how cows back then grew up. <laughs> they yes. ate grass. <laughs> You don't feed them. Why would you feed them something? They didn't. We lived in a coastal zone, so they just grazed. They were just walking around grazing, and then the next thing you know, they were an amazing burger. Um, or so I actually, as a child, grew up eating grass-fed beef before that was even. Wow, you're eating grass-fed beef, and so when I when that started changing, and actually, and I went into the restaurant business, um, that was really quite a shock to find people with, you know, processed beef and how it, I mean, they really saw a difference, uh, both in how it, how the flavor was. And the same thing, I grew up when milk came in bottles and it was delivered by a guy in a little outfit. Yes, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And my parents yeah. did the same thing where they'd pour off the cream for their coffee and give me the milk. So it's a, it's a totally different time now. It certainly is. You know, we might just, your audience might just want to know a few things about the thing. What's the difference between grass-fed and grain-fed beef, just just, just to use beef? Um, so the, the common practice is that cattle are raised uh, on the range, if you will, in the pasture. But then for the last two to three months of their life, they're taken to these feedlots. They're put in a relatively small pen, and they're, they're only... Uh, job, if you will, is to eat uh, corn and soybeans primarily, and a few other things, and get their antibiotic shots and their hormone shots. Mm. And what happens is that uh, uh, the, the, the grass-fed, the, the cow that grows, the steer that grows up in the field, has a relatively low level of what are called omega-6 fatty acids and a relatively high level of omega-3 fatty acids. 
and probably everybody knows that those omega-3 fatty acids are healthy fatty acids, and we need those. We actually need some omega-6s too, but but we need a a good bit of omega-3s. Anyway, when you start feeding them grains, that switches. And now the fat, the, the fat that, grow, that develops in them is a lot more omega-6s and very, very little omega-3s. Uh, and in addition, and, and those two types of fatty acids are the unsaturated fatty acids, but then uh, the cow or the, the steer begins to build up a lot more saturated fat as well. And that's the dangerous, particularly dangerous part of, of, of the meat. So our Department of Agriculture uh, uh, is complacent in all this because they mark the beef uh, as they're inspecting it, you know, as prime or choice or I think the next grade down is good. Uh, What's prime meat? Well, it's the one that has the most fat in it. Mm. It's the most saturated fat. Uh, It's got the the least amount of the omega-3 fatty acids in it. So we're, we're being told that the best... The prime, the most expensive, of course, is the least healthy of all. Of course, you well, won't I like would it have to. Has that taste. Yeah, and I would have to toss in also that very few of the. I live in Northern California. I'm fortunate to live in Northern California, where grass-fed is more of a norm than it is an exception. And there are a number of groups around here who specifically grow grass-fed beef and get top dollar for that beef, better than prime in terms yes. of dollar cost. And one of the other things that they, one of the reasons they don't feed them grains is because it cost, costs them more to do that versus just letting a cow wander around on the fields. They have acreage. They go out, they eat, they, you know, maintain them. And the other thing is that so many of the grains are GMO, and that means it's probably been sprayed with something that's not such a good thing, like, let's say, Roundup, um, yep. glyphosate. And so you have that on top of it. Not only are you getting beef that's being fatted unnaturally, but it's also being fatted with something that's a toxin to begin with. So that's a whole other tricky gray area. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, in our supermarket, and I live just outside of Baltimore, in our supermarket, um, they're starting to sell uh, grass-fed uh, beef and lamb. But the price is much higher. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's higher here too. Now, I'm not saying it's cheaper; <laughs> it's higher. Yeah. But you don't have to. We'll, we'll you know, that, that's a whole diet conversation. But the idea of my, my idea is that you eat more like somebody from the Pacific Rim, which means lots of vegetables with a handful of protein, versus the standard American diet where you have the giant porterhouse. Although I can down a giant porterhouse occasionally because, oh, my God, it's a giant porterhouse. Um, but more that sort of thing, more of the – and that's part of this diet. That's, I think, why the uh, Seventh-day Adventists in those communities, it's just, it's just how it is. It's not an extraordinary thing. They're not going out of their way to do anything. It's just a lifestyle thing, which leads me to kind of ask – has the standard, the sad diet been, has the standard American diet always been so sad or what happened? Was it part of the technological revolution where we started eating refined carbohydrates? Well, in your research and views? Yeah. So it's a really good question, and I'm trying to figure out just how to answer it. 
So the standard American diet, that SAD, SAD diet, it really is SAD. So let's just, first of all, what do we eat? We eat these grain-fed meats and lots of it. We don't eat many vegetables. We don't eat much fruit. Um, we eat a lot of, uh, of carbohydrates in the form of stuff made from white flour. So white flour has the nutrients taken out, basically, uh, you know, the outside uh, coating. That gives it that nice white appearance. And white flour digests very quickly to sugar, to glucose, and it's absorbed uh, as glucose. And then, of course, if we eat sugary foods like that soda, uh, cakes, pies, cookies, which is white flour plus sugar, um, candy bars and so on, which are all sugar, and uh, also large quantities of, uh, of high fructose corn syrup, which is a mixture of fructose and glucose, it, we eat then a huge amount of sugar. I can't remember if we talked about this last time, but the average American, and there's two different numbers. One number is 77 pounds of sugar a year, and the other is 154 pounds of sugar a year. Mm. And um, so, so why the difference? Well, the, the, the 77 pounds is what we actually probably eat. 154 is what we produce, but a lot of that may get tossed out and wasted. So let's go with the 77 pounds. That's um, higher math for me, but let's take 77 and divide it by five, you know, a five-pound bag of sugar. So I think that's what, um, um, 13 bags of sugar, 12 bags of sugar. Wow. Wow. Um, set that on your dining on your, on your kitchen table and say, gee, I eat 12 bags of sugar per year. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> and then you and I will both say, well, I don't. And everybody says, I don't. Well, somebody does because it has to average out. <laughs> so where does that sugar yeah. come from? Well, there's a huge amounts of sugar in a soda. Um, uh, you've got to convert uh pounds to grams because the, 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 the if you take a can of soda and you look up how much sugar is in it, it'll say 39 or 40, and that's 40 grams, um, and 40 grams is four, 454 grams to a pound. We don't need to go through the calculations, but, you know, who has one soda? Um, most of the teenagers I know have three or four or five sodas in a day, and, uh, you know, plus the candy bar, plus a, you know, a uh, I shouldn't just say teenagers, this is all of us. You know, we, we're going to have our cereal in the morning, uh, which is going to be a sugared cereal, you know, Fruit Loops or uh, Frosted Flakes or whatever. And then we're going to have to have a, a, a morning coffee break, which is, you know, some kind of pastry. Then we're going to have our lunch, which is going to be from one of those fast food restaurants, and uh, we don't need to go into that. Although I'll come back to that actually in a second. Then we have our afternoon little have to have a little something around four o'clock, and then we have our supper or dinner. And then, well, before we go to bed, let's look in the refrigerator and see if we got some, or the freezer and see if we got a little bit of ice cream, to, you know, to, to finish off the evening. So we, you know, that sugar adds up pretty well. To go back to that lunch, that fast food lunch, I was having lunch not long ago with a uh, a lovely lady, very very brilliant. Uh, a nurse by background who was really seriously overweight, and she ordered a a, a, a large hamburger, you know, not a, a quarter pounder type thing, maybe, maybe 
yeah, it, I don't think it was a half a pound, but it was a big, a big hamburger, nice and gooey, and uh, you know, with a bun. And then she had her French fries, and then the person asked what she would like for you know sides, and she said, well, how about macaroni and cheese? And at that point, I was having chest pain just thinking about it. Uh, she had a, a, a Coke, a large Coke. And uh, when the waitress came back later on, she asked for a repeat of the large Coke. And then, of course, she had dessert. She had a piece of pie for dessert. It, I decided I would actually look up the uh, calories in that meal, and it was 1,400 calories. Most people my age, I'm 77, probably don't need but 1,800 calories in a day because we're just not as active. We're not, we're just not what we were when we were younger. So if she had 1,400 calories for lunch, there wasn't a lot of room left <laughs> for the rest of the day if she only wanted to hit 1,800 calories. So it was an unhealthy lunch uh, to start, but it was also too much, um, grossly too much. And as well, I said, and, she, knew, yeah. she knew better. Well, and how does the body, I didn't, I have to ask, how does the body even cope with that much sugar intake, which digests almost as you might as well just shoot it into your vein? I mean, I like a good dessert. Let me be yeah, clear. Sure. I like a great dessert occasionally. Yeah. But I mean, when you drink that much sugar so quickly, because really you're just, it's just colored water with it's all sugar. I mean, yeah, it has right. a little bit of flavor maybe. So all that sugar hits the liver, the digestive system, and kicks the liver in the head, and then it's supposed to process a burger. I mean, how does that? <laughs> That's right. Wow. Let's deal with the sugar for a second. So remember the, that white bread that she had, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the bun uh, yeah. converted to sugar right away as well. So all this sugar goes into her her bloodstream fairly quickly and then when your sugar level goes up glucose level goes up uh, your body puts out insulin and the insulin's needed let's just say you're out taking a walk and uh, and, and you're using therefore your legs and your arms because you're moving along and you need some uh, some fuel for those muscles so what will happen is the, the insulin helps the glucose get into the cells where it can be used to, to drive the engines but you only need so much, and there may be, in this case, you know there's going to be a lot of sugar left over. But anyway, uh, what's left over, as you said, goes to the liver, and it's stored for later use as a substance called glycogen. And glycogen is just a storage form of glucose. So then later, um, when you're not eating and you're not putting in new sugar and those muscles need some stuff, uh, the glycogen in the, sh in the liver is converted back to glucose. It gets into the bloodstream, and the insulin puts it into the cells. Now, if you eat so much sugar that you fill up the storage area in the liver, then what's left of the sugar is, is made into fat, which is put into fat cells in the liver. And then when those cells are full, the rest of the sugar goes to the fat cells in, let's we'll just say, your belly. Um, that thing that tends to stick out, <laughs> it gets fatter. So th that fat in your belly is not because you ate too much fat. It's because you ate too much sugar and too much white flour. Uh, those are the things that go in there and, and, and make, that, uh, uh, make that fat. So 
what you've done by having too much sugar is uh, you know produce fat and so but then there's something else is <laughs> yeah. happening though so now uh you had too much sugar now, but then you have that uh, that pastry later and the and the extra soda later and so on and so forth um, each time you do that, it drives your insulin up, and when insulin is driven up multiple times to very high levels you develop what's called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is the first step toward diabetes. So one of the reasons why we have this literal epidemic of diabetes now, type 2 diabetes, is the way we're consuming sugars and white flour. Um, we, we are wearing out, if you will, our body's ability to deal with it. it it's just... Um, I can't think of any other term. Just kind of, you know, just it, it's it, you're wearing it out, and so when your body can't, it has is resistant to insulin, or partially resistant, then you try to put out more insulin to make up the difference, and and then your pancreas, which makes the the the, the insulin, after a while it gets tired and it can't do it anymore, and so now you need to take insulin shots. And so it's, and that's when you have diabetes, when you need the insulin shots. But the, it's all starting to a large degree because of what we eat, this standard American diet. And here's something that's really quite amazing. And I think you sort of touched on it earlier. If you convert to a diet which is largely plant-based, the Mediterranean diet or your Pacific Rim diet, so you're eating a lot of vegetables, a modest amount of fruits, um, healthy oils like olive oil and the, the, the oils that are in nuts and seeds and, uh, and, 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 and fish, within a week, the, the sugar levels are going to come down um, and the liver is going to get cleaned out. And you're not going to lose your belly fat that quick, but you can really get yourself back to a, uh, a much healthier uh, place by just converting to a, I'm going to call it a plant-based, a largely plant-based diet. And it's quite amazing. Hmm. Wow. Uh, I want to jump, uh, I have a whole conversation about that, but I want to jump a subject that's, I think, a real sleeper subject that you and I have had some backstage communication about. I want to talk about well, it's a combination, uh, in my mind, of community and or of this amazing level of loneliness that people have, and particularly how it seems to hit the, I can't help but use the term elder community. I'm in that community. My hand is up. <laughs> but, I mean, it's really, it's such an epidemic, and I don't ever hear it talked about much in Western medicine, classic Western medicine. I mean, it's maybe spoken to, but it's not something that can really be measured and yet there is just this elevated level of loneliness that people are experiencing. And for me, the conundrum is everybody seems to be thinking they're being social because they're on Facebook all the time. And yes, I'm directly <laughs> picking on Facebook. I, that's my personal view. So that's quite all right. <laughs> what is, why is loneliness so elevated? And, there's, and, it's, and it's such a tricky cascade to get into a loneliness spiral, I would call it. Yes, so we all well, we we all like to be alone once in a while. You know, you just kind of want to have a little time by yourself. Um, so that's being alone, but not lonely. And then there's being lonely, 
which is um, this this feeling that there's just you know everything's been taken away from you from a social perspective, and and that can happen if you lose a spouse, for example. So that's one of the reasons why in older people you see it more often because you lose a spouse or a significant other, or even a, a companion animal. You know that your dog that was very important to you dies, and that be, can become very very important. Um, uh, a child dies, um, so or you you lose your job or you retire, uh, and if you're all your all your social interactions were related to your job situation, suddenly you're kind of a bit lonely. But most people can work through that. It may take a, a while, and certainly when you lose a spouse or a significant other, uh, you you go through a period of grief. And in many situations, uh, your religious uh, set of beliefs can help you through that. But some people don't come through it. And they remain this sense of loneliness. And I'm going to call it perceptual loneliness. They perceive that they're lonely. They perceive that no one around them cares, that no one wants to help, that no one sees their suffering um, even though their friends, uh, you know, would love to reach out to them. Uh, but then what happens is the friend reaches out and the lonely person pushes back. And so the friend says, heck, heck with that, you know, I, I don't need that. <laughs> and so they back off. Uh, so it's just the, just the opposite of what's needed. So this perceptual loneliness is, 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 is common, as you said, epidemic in some places. I live in a retirement community of 2,000 people, it, it ages from maybe 65 or so up to 100, and, I think 107. Uh, mm-hmm. I, loneliness here is endemic. Now, I, I don't, I'm not talking about the loneliness that comes from a situational thing, you know, the, the death of the spouse. That, that's, that's, you know, we all understand that well. And usually friends and neighbors will, will help out. But it's this person who has this perceptual loneliness, and they push people away. And you know, this, 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 here is the person who won't come out to dinner. They just get carryout. Um, they don't come to uh, uh, any of the activities that are going on. And you would think at a place where, where I live, you know, there's, there's 2,000 people. There's six restaurants here, so you can go and have a meal with somebody. Um, there are innumerable activities, groups, uh, things, um, you know, card card things and um, lecture series and, 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 and group discussions and, and, you know, you name it, it's going on here. But this person won't show up. Uh, and they just, they don't come and they assume that, because, uh, again, it's, it's perception. And you mentioned it earlier that, we don't recognize it as that as such. Um, they go see the doctor, and the doctor may say they're they're depressed and give them anti-depression medicine, and and that's okay, I guess. But that's not getting to the root cause. The root cause is the is is the perceived loneliness, this perception that no one out there cares. And so, what what needs to be done? Well, first of all, that person isn't going to reach out for help because they assume if they reach out, they'll be rebuffed. So it, it really requires uh, that all of us as a community, and I don't mean just where I'm living, but I'm talking about the overall community, when we come across someone who has this type of loneliness, and it's common, like you said, then we do need to reach out. And if we're pushed back a bit, don't, don't 
don't accept it. <laughs> Turn around and, and, and push back a little bit. It may be small, small gestures, um, whatever they may be, uh, and then perhaps inviting someone to come have a meal together or have tea together uh, or just picking up the phone and calling them. Uh, you know, those sorts of small things. But then the other thing is, again, you mentioned this, the medical community, I think, is very, I can say this because I'm part of the medical community, I think the medical community just doesn't recognize loneliness. Uh, it's, it, it can be measured. There's something called the UCLA loneliness score, or scale, excuse me. It's 20 questions, very simple questions, um, and you take and you answer one, two, three, or four to each question. And you add it up, and if you're over a certain number, that's a pretty darn strong uh, statement that this person has really, you know, real perceptual loneliness. So what can the doctor do? Well, doctors aren't trained to do very much, but the first thing they can do, though, is just talk and, uh, and then maybe hook them up with somebody like a, uh, like a social worker uh, or uh, a mental health counselor. They may need something, it may be something fairly simple, counseling can take care of it, but it may mean um, uh, what's called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which doesn't have to be complex, but uh, it, can, it can do the job and, and really help people dramatically. Well, and also from a technology view from my side, from somebody who does spend, has, spends time either in social media or doing research or in any of those arenas there are times when I get together with friends for a meal and they're constantly on their phones and they they, and they understand that at some point if I'm talking to them and they pick up their phone to check their Facebook or their Twitter feed I stop talking and and I only have to do this a couple of times. I'm not being mean. It's just I don't. I'm oh, there to be with that person. I'm there to have conversation, have a meal, be social. And it's not a mean thing. It's just a no, no. If we're, if no. we're together, we're together to have conversation. Now I understand people need to monitor their child care if they're you know watching somebody or something's going on. But you don't need to be checking your Facebook feed to see the latest picture of a kitty doing something cute. And I like cats. Exactly. Yeah, right. Um, but, that you're... but it's a thing where people, and I see this, I see a really, what I would call a tricky trend, this is a whole other show, where I see particularly young women sitting in groups all on their phones texting somebody or doing something. They're not really <laughs> looking at each other and engaging. And I just think that's a very, wow, I think that's tricky. Yeah, it's 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 a real shame. We were at a restaurant out in the out in the woods one time, and uh, there was a father and son there, and kind of had the sense that this was supposed to be a special time together. <laughs> they were both had their phones out. I don't think they were texting each other. <laughs> it was such a pity. Yeah. Now, here they are out in this wonderful natural setting, having the chance to have lunch together with no interruptions and so on. And they couldn't find anything to talk about. <laughs> or they were just so tied about. down. Yeah, there, yeah. there is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm stunned to find we're at that time again. Uh, there may be a whole other show because I would really like to talk about uh, at some point talk about the your you wrote a book about fixing the primary care crisis 
and really getting patients and doctors to communicate again because I just think we have a whole trend of people not really willing to communicate, period, in person, like looking into somebody's face and talking. It's a shocking idea. Um, but we're there. Um, where would you like people to find out more information about your books and what you're thinking today? Because <laughs> you're always well, thinking. I know I've talked to you thinking. enough. You're well, always thinking, yeah. Well, I would say uh, go to Amazon and look up uh, the seven keys to healthy aging. And uh, you, I won't tell you to spell my name because that's probably hard. Uh, so just look up the seven keys to healthy aging and you'll find it. And, uh, yes, I'm a little bit uh, uh, prejudiced here, but I think for most people it can be very helpful. And, by the way, it's most helpful for younger people because if we start these lifestyle changes when we're young, it's just like saving money for retirement. It compounds and builds up over the years, much more valuable and much easier to do if you start young. So Amazon, Seven Keys to Healthy Aging. Great. Thank you so much. I I have so many thoughts right there, but I'm going to stop now because it's okay. okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, doctor. That was great again. Uh, everybody have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.